Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a multi-talented producer and performer whose considerable output has led to countless hours of heartwarming and outrageous televised airtime. As an actor, he spent three seasons ghosting the undead in the popular vampire series The Lair, and he's appeared in such films as Birthday Cake and Holiday Road Trip. As a producer, he's curated content for networks like Hallmark, Lifetime, the Sci-Fi Channel, and more. Producing fright films like The Crooked Man and Kukui, The Boogeyman, holiday movies like A Wedding for Christmas and Jingle Bells, and scintillating thrillers like The Wrong Teacher and the upcoming Secret Obsession. Please welcome to the show, producer and actor extraordinaire, Brian Nolan. <laughs> wow, that was, like, awesome. Like, um, uh, I appreciate that, Michael. I'm so excited to be here. I am a huge fan of this podcast. Well, I've listened I- to most of episodes, if not all of them. Well, thank you so much, and I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm glad to finally have you here. Yeah. And all of these things, you've got quite the resume across a lot of different genres, so it's going to be very fun to dig into. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of incredible. I've, I've recently had a part in my life where I've look back on that. I'm like, wow, I, I had no idea that I had done all, <laughs> done all. I mean, I knew, but I didn't know. I mean, I guess just a lot has happened in the past couple of years so fast and, you know, time goes by so quickly that you're like, oh, wait, what, what happened the time and where did all these movies come from? You right. Know, so. But that's a good problem to have, certainly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I count my blessings and thank my, my lucky stars, <laughs> whatever that, wherever that phrase came from. <laughs> well, I think it was Madonna, actually. Fameful philosopher <laughs> Madonna t- told us about the lucky star. Uh, so why don't we, uh, before we dig into all of that, just start with uh, my favorite way to start with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think people are drawn to the genre? But why horror? Why not? It's now or never. That's what Elvis said, right? <laughs> Sorry, I just had thrown a showgirls quote there. Um, I'll tell you why horror. Because, you know, I, I think horror and then the thriller, they're the best and most compelling type of entertainment I feel out there. It's personally, it's what inspires me um, the most um, from a creative aspect uh, growing up. You know, I became obsessed with, you know, Alfred Hitchcock films um, based on an exhibit, Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, that they had this whole 3D exhibit and they showed you how the shower scene. And anyways, I'm going off on a on a on a rant right now about this. But that seeing stuff like that as a child is what kind of like inspired me to want to work in the film industry. Um, I think horror creates heroes uh, It inspires people. Um, and there's justice a lot in these films, too, you know, and I feel that's something people kind of emotionally relate to in, in their lives, no matter what the right. circumstances are. Now, when you say justice in horror movies, I think that's a really interesting point. What do you mean by that? Um, well, generally, most of the time, you know, the the bad guy gets it at the end and there's something very, you know, um, uh, winning about that <laughs> you know it feels good I think that's why a lot of people uh, myself included like a lot of like true crime documentaries and the shows like forensic files and the dateline stuff you know because I think it makes people more passionate about justice for people that do bad things to people right you now um, but mysteries are, are mysteries and they're 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 great stories you know um, there's something compelling that really pulls you in because right. you want to know Right. And I think that the, the the truth about justice and horror as well that I think is always interesting, and we talk about it especially when you look at the tropes of the 80s, mm-hmm. where uh, if you are existing in a, in a world of otherness, you see a lot of the people who are maybe assholes in life kind of get theirs in horror movies in right. a way that maybe they don't always get in real life. So there's like kind of that artistic justice and it's like emotional catharsis so you get to go in and like put like your anxieties and your fears into the movie and maybe just for 90 minutes have some release absolutely and everybody wants to be the hero you know everybody wants to be the hero and a lot of gay men probably want to be that final girl um i know i I probably do (laughs) (laughs) at some point you know uh you know what i really love is the idea that you discovered alfred hitchcock via a theme park attraction in that wild like well i grew up outside of orlando in a town called lake mary florida Mm -hmm. and they opened up universal studios there in 1990 when i was 10 years old and I went there that first year and they had a this whole exhibit and I used to make my parents, you know, go through it with me like more than once where they showed like the three all like a bunch of his movies in 3D like The Birds and Dalem for Murder and then you went in this room and you saw um, how they filmed the shower scene mm-hmm. and and then you got to go in these other areas and and 
they always need volunteers to, you know, pretend you're hanging off the Statue of Liberty and uh, saboteur. And I would always, you know, force my way to the front and be like, I got to be the person, you know, <laughs> that that is the example for everyone or uh, for the audience. Um, and I was thinking a lot about that before I went into this. Um, that really got me into filmmaking, believe it or not, and and movies. Um, I had always been in my parents uh, had always exposed me to a lot of arts and we always went and saw all like the, the Broadway tours uh, coming through and mm-hmm. um, they were big movie fans, big TV fans. So um, I've always been kind of exposed to the entertainment industry. But I think at that point was where it was like, Oh my God, this is so cool. And then me and my dad kind of started this whole thing where we were just watching all of Alfred Hitchcock's films. And I was like 10, 11, 12, you know, and uh I just love the concept. I love the mystery. I love the suspense. And I guess those were considered the horror films of their time, sure, you know, yeah. um, or in some aspects. I know Psycho definitely was considered a horror film. Do you have a favorite Hitchcock movie? Uh, yes. I, it's probably The Birds. Yeah. What is it about The Birds that you like? Um, the locations, uh, which I discovered as a producer, is so important to right. a film, like the setting, you know? Mm-hmm. I like that there's no kind of like... Um, reason why. I remember as a kid watching it being like, well, why do they just attack all these people? What's going on? But that's kind of cool, you know? Um, You have this character that's, these two characters meet, you know, randomly and really don't know each other and they're kind of thrown into the situation, you know? Right. Um, I always love a good, you know, animal attack movie, you know, (laughs) which is probably why Jurassic Park's probably one of my favorite movies as well too, you know? Um, and then I, I, I'm also partial, of course, to Psycho and then to uh, North by Northwest. I really love a lot. You know, I was thinking about Psycho the other day. You were talking about how important locations are to films. And this, these are things that audiences, when they watch, shouldn't be thinking about because it should be so inherent to the world. But as filmmakers, it's really key to curate. Mm-hmm. And Psycho, uh, when you talk about the shower scene and how it was filmed, the one thing that I think frequently gets over looked uh, in the discussion is the sound design. Mm -hmm. And I think that that to me is the real horror of that scene because here in in this era where you can't really show anything, it's still one of the most visceral scenes in cinema because you hear that knife hitting. You never see it, but you hear that sound of it like sticking in her. Mm-hmm. And that to me, like when I think of that, is way more gross than right. if we actually saw the <laughs> night. Absolutely. And I've always said that. I always feel like the greatest, it's the Jaws, you know, right. effect where the greatest horror or the greatest thriller is a thing you're not, but the greatest thrill is uh, something you're actually not seeing, you know? Right. Um, and, or just a little bit of, you know, I always say like misery is like the perfect, like, horror thriller movie right um because it's so like it's so it's containing this one space you have two really great actors um and you know the one part that's so hard to watch you see for a split second which is when she you know breaks his ankles right i saw that movie when i was 10 years old i can't believe i I was that young when i saw it but um uh it's such a great well-done film and i feel like those kind of movies those kind of horror films Thrillers are the best that are great character studies. And then there's justice at the end, you know, um, but, you know, it, it definitely leaves a trail of a uh, of terror. Right. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your kind of progression into your your craft in your career you you are going to universal studios you're seeing the hitchcock exhibits and you are volunteering quite vehemently to to be the the display kid if you will (laughs) uh and at the same time you're watching these movies with your dad and, and exploring this world of the master of suspense right and as you said part of that really uh informed your desire to be making movies Mm -hmm. but uh at what point did you realize in your young life like i I really want to do this i really want to act uh when was that pivot probably after jurassic park came out i saw that movie three times in the theater that Mm -hmm. summer i was 13 so it was you know the ripe old the ripe old age of 13 you know when you come of age i guess (laughs) um and uh and then when i went into high school you know the next year or whatever i um just got involved in theater and it kind of like changed me, saved me, sculpted me, be the person I am today, you know, and, uh, and, um, then majored in theater and, and college. Um, which is crazy now that I think about it because, you know, I I was like, why didn't I go for film or, you know, but I'm 
glad it worked out the way it did. I'm glad I went to college. I encourage everyone to go to college. So so I do know that you have a great love of theater. And one thing I wanted to talk about having you on the air today is uh, I happen to know that you have a particularly strong affinity for one theater production. Carry the musical. No, carry the musical. <laughs> and that's, that's Rent. It is, yeah. And, you know, when you talk about rent culturally, like the the universal you. I think that uh, uh, the newer generation of, of queer kids who are coming up don't necessarily know the impact that when that show debuted in 1997 that it had in terms of uh, telling our kind of stories on a broader stage. Right. And uh, I, I know that the show meant a great deal to you. So could you tell me a little bit about Discovering Rent and, and, and just your kind of personal connection to it? Absolutely. Thank, thank you for asking. Um, I, I remember watching the Tonys, uh, the 1996 Tonys, and they perform La Vie Bohème. Anthony Rapp and the cast all perform La Vie Bohème from Rent. And I'm like, what is this? And then right. it won all these awards. And, you know, I was 16 years old at the time, and I, I knew that I was gay, and I knew, you know, and I was in theater, and, you know, I, I you feel so accepted in that world. And then to see this, you know, this this onstage show where everyone's, you know, there's gay people be, you're being represented on 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 stage, and there's, it's not a big deal. There's right. actually other issues people are dealing with that are way more severe than than being gay. And um, I love that because, like you said, a lot of audiences don't really, or a lot of uh, younger kids today don't really get that. That right. going to see that was was an experience because you're looking around you're seeing like all like these you know older looking conservative people going to the theater and enjoying the show and embracing it and it's not it's not so foreign that these people are gay artists what have you you know i remember the very first time that i saw it uh at the netherlander theater in new york uh where it ran for a great number of years uh, the that particular line in La Vie Bohème to being an us for once instead it's of a, a them, them. and yeah. that like of all of the lines in the in the sh- uh, show really struck me because there is especially when you're a teenager we're we're close in age uh, how you just never felt like the world was gonna see you. Right, and then here's this thing that became a pop culture phenomenon. It is. It's on TV. It's on the Tonys. It's you know people are singing "Seasons of Love" on the Rosie O'Donnell show, and right. it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, maybe there is a better tomorrow. You know. Yeah. Uh, and I think that uh, it's important when we discuss queer history to even just m- mark those moments. Uh, I mean, obviously, Rent has has a huge stake in in kind of contemporary modern art queer history. Uh, but one of the goals of Dead for Filth is to talk about these things and how they influenced us. Like a lot of times when we have guests on and we talk about queer movies, we talk about like, oh, how, you know, you would sneak to the the video store in the town over to rent, you know, like eating out or get real or whatever. Right. Uh, because you were so desperate to see gay content. But theater was such an outlet for so many people. And I know it was so important to you. Absolutely. Uh, and uh yeah, so I just wanted to to kind of hit on. Did you see Rent live? Did you watch? It? I did. Yeah, you know, and I thought it was great. This is the thing. It's like people, the the peanut gallery of the internet that didn't exist back in the you know the mid nineties, is is one thing. So I try not to get too negative with it. Right. Um, and I know they had their own production challenges uh, due to an actor hurting himself. So right. Um, all that said, it was so incredible to see this this over twenty year old you know work of art. And with the orchestrations like so amplified and seeing all the passion and the energy it was so cool. Like I, I couldn't not watch it and and not tear up a little bit because it just kind of brought me back to that that place in my life, you know, where you're you have the whole world ahead of you and you're doing art that inspires you because like that's what it did. It always inspired me, you know, like watching right. it. The music is just so good and it's so, you know, and you know, like everything, it has its own faults. And as you get older, you, you see the faults clearly. But like, um, I really appreciate that show and, and, and what it did for me. I mean, I was too obsessed. Like I had a, my first email was Rent at AOL.com. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> well, uh, and that's not your email anymore. No, I was no, saying Because you don't want to reveal that to all of our <laughs> listeners. Um, but, you know, if someone still has that email, I hope that someone 
right. you know, is getting an, a strange letter this week. <laughs> uh, you know what? I will say this about, about Rent Live before we move on. Um, I thought it was really interesting how kind of vehement the internet got about the fact that they showed a recorded earlier version of it because right. of the actor injuring himself. And I n- didn't really have a problem with that. I no. kind of feel like if you're watching something on TV, we expect it to be produced in some capacity. And so the fact that it was there were pre-recorded segments due to an injury was not a big deal. I do recognize that it is supposed to be in the spirit of theater and maybe they should have had an understudy, but it's actually not theater. It's, it's live television right. event. So we have to afford it different kind of set of rules. I think that for me, if I had any issue with it, is because I'm such an anti-censorship person, that there were lyrics that Jonathan Larson had written oh, yeah, that, that was... got censored out. Yeah. And it's sort of just like, I appreciate that they're bringing this message and this this kind of piece of gay history and AIDS history to, to a larger audience who are watching at home who maybe would never see it at the theater. Uh, but I kind of feel like We've had moments on network TV where it's like this is presented uncut or whatever. If you're going to do a live theater production, just kind of throw that caveat up or have like someone at the beginning say there's going to be some language in this that maybe you don't approve of because then it becomes dubious. It was a little awkward. Well, it's awkward, but then there's also kind of a question where what words do you edit out and what words do you not? Like in La Vie Boheme, they edit out the word dildo. But they didn't edit out the word faggot. I I was about to say that, yeah. And from a gay man's perspective, I'm like, okay, so you're sending the message to America that this inanimate object that you assign sexual, you know, attributes to is far more offensive than a word that has been used as a slur and a hateful term for centuries. Right, right. (laughs) So it's like, and I think that that's the communication thing. I mean, honestly, I don't think either of them because they're in the show should be censored out otherwise. But if you're going to censor out that, you need to censor out that. It's such a weird, arbitrary thing. I I get what you're saying. I I thought about that too when they said that. I'm like, are they going to say it? Are they going to say it? And then they said it. I was like, wow, it's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Uh, So you go to theater school Mm -hmm. and then what's the transition into the world of professional acting? Because you do end up on TV pretty quickly. It was, well, I mean, you know, as as a young, early, mid-20s person, you know, it doesn't happen fast enough because you think you you think you don't have any time and you got you to gotta right. work quickly. Otherwise, you're not going to be a star. And, you know, and uh, it, you know, I, it, you lose that, of course, the more, the longer you live here and you realize everything has its own time. It doesn't always happen the way you plan, but it always happens right on time, right. as they say. So um, I, after I graduated from college in uh, 2003, I, uh, I worked for a couple of theater companies on the East Coast in North Carolina and Virginia, did plays, and then I uh, moved, went down to Florida and uh, moved down here. Uh, me and my mom did the whole trek across country. She came with me four and a half days um, and uh, came here, um, just started taking classes and just trying to get into it. And it took a couple of years and uh, and then I did the lair. And um the rest is history. No, I mean, wait, was, so of... was the lair the first show that you booked in that way? Uh da, 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 da. yeah, because I think up to that point I had only done like student films and like shorts and uh, you know, the things. It actually took me a while, and I always say I learned how to be an on-camera actor on that show because I had come from this theater world. And when you go to theater school, no one tells you how to make it in LA or make it in the film and television industry or how to act in that way. Like they don't have, I mean, at least at my school, they didn't have, you know, on camera technique, you know? And right. so I would go to all these auditions and stuff when I first got here and these open calls. And I was just like, Hey, I'm Mr. Over the top right now. Look at my eyebrows. Look at how high they go, you know. Uh, so it, it was definitely like an experience to get to kind of bring that down. And now it feels way more comfortable to me than if you put me on stage right now. Now, when you, before we get into the lair, because I, obviously the lair is, is, is a grand discussion about the intersection of queerness and horror. Uh, <laughs> I love that. But I was looking at, at your IMDb resume before we got together and we're, we're friends and we know each other in the real world, but we do. Uh, there are uh, all, always things that like I'm excited to discover about people that I didn't necessarily know. But for listeners on the internet who uh, treat IMDb as if it is uh, the absolute Bible of, of film, it usually is accurate, but it, it can occasionally not be. Right. So it can be the inaccurate movie database as much as it can be the internet movie <laughs> database. And um, as a fan of like 
late 90s, early 1000s, kind of like heightened, but kind of poorly produced action television shows <laughs> like Nightman or Highlander the Raven. Like these are all things that I used to watch quite regularly. Uh, I am always fascinated when I know someone who popped up in one of those. And you have a credit from 2000 on a show called Sheena. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that. That's so funny. Um, so when I was at uh, UCF where I went to college, University of Central Florida. Right. Um, I had like a, a local agent in Orlando, but it was never, I never got in for anything like big. It was mostly uh, background work or stand in work. Like I got to be a stand in for JC Chizé once from NSYNC for a special they were filming there. Oh, and, I love that. Um, and uh, I uh, did this Nickelodeon show. Uh, and I'll, that's another, that's actually a great story that Kim Fields, uh, Facts of Life, Kim Fields directed. But that's a whole other great circle round. What Nickelodeon show was that? It was called Taina. Okay. Um, and it was pretty much, I was just an extra. And Kim Fields was directing that episode. And she was super cool and super nice. And it was, it, I think it was a show that only lasted like one season. But it was a performing arts high school right. kind of thing. And I think I was 20, 19 or 20 at the time. Um, and uh, she was super nice. And then cut to... Uh, 2017, a movie I produced called Wrapped Up in Christmas, Kim Fields was in. Um, we actually need someone to play Tatiana Ali's sister. And I and we were just looking at, you know, TV names and um, especially her. She's like an icon, you right. know, to television. And I go, what about Kim Fields? And she said yes. And she did it. And I told her that story. I go, you know, the first set I was ever on in my life, it was the first set. Um, uh, you were the director and you were so cool and so nice. She's like, oh my God, thank God. you were. I was so nice. And she's like, I'm using this now as a full circle moment. Like you never know who you're going to be working with, where they're going to go or how it could, you know, she's like, you're kind of my boss now, you know? Right. So Well, and that's like coming from Kim Field's mouth. How does that make you feel to know that like you as a, as a young kid <laughs> in the show that she directs and now you are the one who hired her? Like, it was cool. It was really cool. It was really awesome. And she's so nice and, and a lovely, a lovely person. Um, but Sheena. Okay, and I, I do... Sheena. Sorry, I didn't mean to get off on a, a track there. No, uh, no, I think that's exactly the kind of off track we love on this show. Uh, Sheena, for, for uh, listeners who don't know, is based on a, a, a character who has existed in multiple iterations <laughs> over pop culture. She's a jungle queen uh, who is usually played by like a buxom blonde woman. Uh, Tanya Roberts, I think, played her at one point. Uh, and uh, there were several movies made that would usually play like on late night USA network right. cable. But then there was also Sheena the series. For those who were not getting enough, you know, Sheena in their diet. And Brian Nolan played cult member in an episode. <laughs> and I, I couldn't not have him on and ask about this. Oh my gosh, I love it. So that was actually probably like in terms of my Orlando work, my Orlando film and television work, that was probably like the most featured thing I ever did where I was like a cult member. And the whole thing was Sheena was like comes to like this cult in the middle of the woods that we filmed in Polk County, Florida. And these people are just kind of walking by, walking around like zombies with like tie-dye shirts on and stuff like that. And um, they kept focusing in on me. Like she was like looking at me and I'm just like sitting there like in a daze going, yes, master, or, what, or whatever. It's so funny. And um, uh, my friend Kara uh, Senko actually has a video of this because she was a cult member with me that day. Mm -hmm. um, and she has a video, a VHS tape of this. And I got to get it and look at it again one night because it's so ridiculous, but awesome. I love that. I have a picture of Gina Lee Nolan somewhere too. Uh, no relation, by the way. And that's what I said. I go, oh, maybe we're like distantly related and someone, you know, spelled our names wrong. But. And uh, she she was not having it. No, she was cool. She was okay. Cool. She thought it was funny. So <laughs> thank God. All right. So from uh, so from Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, to uh, Frankie, King of the Ghosts. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the Lair. The Lair yeah. was uh, a show that aired on uh, the now defunct here television network. Uh, that was on for three seasons. That was all about uh, gay vampires who were running a, a nightclub called The Lair. Lair. <laughs> and uh, the show kind of garnered quite a bit of a fan following. It was like gay dark shadows. Yeah. Uh, so tell me just about getting that gig, uh, and then we can dig into it, because it was, I think, especially for queer horror fans, a definite cultural moment. So That's awesome. I love hearing that. That's so cool. I loved being a part of that. Like, it's, you know, it's it's it was such a great experience. Like I said, I, I learned a lot on that about about film and television mm -hmm. um, and also to my best friends this day are from that show. And that's uh, Dave Moretti and Peter Stickles. Um, 
we so I had seen Dante's Cove and you know one of my dreams as an actor was to be on like a Queer as Folk you know because I love Queer as Folk and I, I believe the show had just ended the year before right um to be on one of these like you know controversial cool you know shows and play like some really cool fun character on something that kind of makes it makes makes its mark on you know pop culture in some way you know so before we continue i do have to ask was so it was always a goal of yours to be involved in some sort of queer content that was always yeah. important to you yeah that's awesome i thought like i felt like i don't know it's i i, I felt that's where i belonged you know right. i felt like that's where i if i was gonna be on any show you know it, it would be that even though when i was in college it's like I don't want to use this term, they beat the gay out of you, but they, you know, in terms of being an actor, you know, a lot of my teachers really try to straighten me out, right. which is good because if you're an actor, you're you're not straighten me out in my real life, but straighten me out as an actor so I can play, right. you know, any part. And um, But the problem is when you move to LA and people only see you as one thing and you're like, hi, I'm Brian Nolan and I'm crazy. They, they kind of put you in that okay well let, let me ask you about that before we continue uh, do you find especially because you i do know as you said earlier in this episode you get asked frequently for the more outrageous roles yeah is that still a major issue in casting gay characters this idea that it's like we still don't really know how to put them in things so they there's more of a cartoony do you know what I'm, t- what I'm saying? I know ask? exactly what you're saying, yeah. and I feel it's totally different now. And, okay. of course, naturally, I'm not a full-time actor now. I'm a producer. Right. But I would have done anything to have the opportunities as an actor that are available now for in gay, in terms of gay roles. Because right. if you look at everything, I even pointed this out to me and my parents were talking about this. All the all the major films this year, the in terms of like uh, Oscar-nominated films and Golden Globe nominations, they all have a gay character in them. Right. And like literally, Green Green Book does. Star is Born has several. Um, can you forever? Uh, can you ever forgive me? Has several. Bohemian Rhapsody, of course. Of course yeah. Um, the favorite is all big old lesbian, lesbianicious uh, triangle. Triangle there. Um, it's it's kind of remarkable. And then yeah. if you look at all the television series, there's always gay characters now, and that didn't exist. Like. When I first moved to LA in the first couple of years, I was trying to be an actor um, and going out. Like when I went out for roles, which most time they were gay, it was the outrageous hairdresser and this, and right. I'm I'm the interior decorator, and and it was fun and it kind of just came naturally to me. Right. But there wasn't stuff like looking and and you know where they just want real looking real guys, you know, right. and and it was it's so it's remarkable. Yeah, there's more substance. There's more well-rounded characters now. Right. It's not that you're playing a gay character you're playing a character who happens to be gay right and that's exciting right because it does mean the needle has has shifted i mean there's still a lot of of work to do absolutely absolutely but, uh, but so the lair you are here you're acting uh and you go on this audition i mm-hmm. think i am I think that your audition story for the Lair is particularly unique, right? It's, it is really cool, actually. Yeah, tell me about that. Because it's amazing how this audition kind of like set the trajectory for my life to this day in, in its own crazy way. So I had been a fan of Dante's Cove, uh, which is the seri- series the Lair was a spinoff of. Right. Um, and they had a breakdown down on one of the actor breakdown things. I didn't have an agent. I had a commercial agent, but I didn't have like a, a film and television theatrical agent at the time. Um and I saw a breakdown for Dante's Dante's Lair is what they called it. Sure. Before I think they changed it for like legal reasons to the Lair. I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, I don't know. Don't uh, don't quote me on that. Um, and I'm like, oh my god, I gotta I I gotta be in this, you right. know. And I submitted for it. I didn't hear anything, and so I there there was an address, and so I sent in a postcard. I had postcards with my my picture on it or whatever like that. And I sent it in, and um, Kim Ray, the producer. Uh, uh, told me later that she saw the postcard and and thought I looked like a young Tom Hanks and uh, which there's more more to that later more yes. more on him later um, uh, and so she called me in for it and the part they called me in for was Dame Reddy's part uh, Tom Etherton right. Tom with an H I think for legal re- again legal reasons right. it was T H O M and everyone called him Thom um, I used to work at the mall with a Thom. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so funny Um, and I think I actually asked that at the audition when they go do you have any questions I'm like is it Thom or Tom (laughs) stupid like I wanted to sound intelligent and ask a really intelligent question that's a real actor question (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
so anyways, I go to this audition and, uh, and I, I do, I, it was like 20 pages of sides or something like that. Right. And like, I had been working on it like all week or something. Right. And I read through it, like maybe even halfway and Fred Ray, Fred Olin Ray, the director, right. who, by the way, some, someone else I also, you know, respected and it was part of my upbringing, uh, from U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, USA up all night. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's Tuesday, people. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's <laughs> it's still early. Um, and he, I think, stopped me halfway through, and um, he they 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 were like, okay, that was good. I was like, do you want me to try it again? And they're like, go step outside. And you know, I was kind of Fred. Kind of says like I was going to the elevator and I was on my way out. I don't think it was that dramatic. Right. But he did come out and said, hey. You know, he pulled me to the side. And he's like, "So you're not right for this part." He's like, "But there's another part in in this uh, series that I need a really good actor for, and you're a really good actor." And I was like, "That's so nice." And Fred Ray, to his uh, to his credit, to this day, is still so complimentary uh, as of me, and it's I really appreciate it right. because coming from him, it's a it's an honor. Um, yeah, and how cool because Fred Olin Ray, for who are fans who who know, is a very vetted. Uh, director of the of the 80s decade and and forward and he did such things as Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and Evil Tunes and Cyclone Uh, Cyclone. and he's definitely like one of those guys who left a mark and then USA Up All Night as you mentioned uh, to get a chance to do this show and I love that Fred whose movies like up until that point were very much like it was always the sexy girl in peril took the chance to make a gay show like I mean it was it was kind of a ballsy move for a filmmaker like him. Absolutely. You know, and that's what was so remarkable about the whole circumstance. Cause you know, Fred, Fred is a very straight man, you know, and yeah. I, I uh, and he's, no, he's like a cigar chomping, right. lo- <laughs> right. loves playboy magazine. Like, you know, it's funny is like, we both have worked with Fred now, like in these years <laughs> since. Uh, and it, it is just cracks me up that when I think of like one of the most heralded gay shows in horror history, it, it was made by like this guy who's like, J. Jonah Jameson kind of right. <laughs> like <laughs> you <know. laughs> Oh, that's 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 about right. Um and he wrote and directed every episode, you know, and uh I I he gave they gave me another like stack of like, you know, twenty twenty pages of sides and I was like, shit, I had been like rehearsing this thing all week and at the time I was coming from the theater world and it was all about preparation and you know and and knowing your stuff. You right. know, I don't know why I have to keep going back to that voice when I when I do this. But anyway. I love it. I, <laughs> um so I went off and I, I think I sat down for like twenty something minutes and just like went over the sides and just went in there and it was Fred in the room and then I think a couple people from the network or whatever like that and I just nailed it, you know? Um and uh, fun fun story. Before I went in there, I met Dave Moretti in the lobby, actually, and that right. was the first time we'd ever met or knew each other, and we just started talking. Um, and uh, it was over. I left. I I didn't. It felt really good, but I didn't really, you know, uh, expect anything to come from it in a way because it just I, being in that room I was like everybody was like really chiseled and like good looking and like really you know extraordinarily attractive you know what I'm saying right, yeah. so like it felt like oh maybe you know I'm at my league here in this in this element you know um, and then uh, they called me I think a couple days later and offered me offered me that part you know and so it's it, and when we did the first season it was um the first season was only six episodes. Right. And I think we shot it over the course of like two weeks uh, really quickly. And uh, I still remember day one, you know, going in there and saying, seeing Dave Moretti and be like, oh, yeah, we met the audition. And, uh, and that same day I met um, Peter Stickles and Dylan Box. Actually, I remember walking up to the, uh, the soundstage that we shot it at and uh, Peter and Dylan are out front, like half naked, uh, rehearsing <laughs> a scene. <laughs> and I'm like, hi, I'm Brian. And I was going to Crafty and... Um, I'm like, I'm going to Crafty. Does anyone want anything? And Dylan asked me to give him a Diet Coke. And he told me later he thought I was a PA. I was just like this nice PA, like helping him. I'm like, no, I was an actor. I'm an actor. <laughs> I'm important. And so from that first season, two more. And yeah. uh, your character, Frankie, has a specific situation that no other character on the show does. Mm-hmm. And while they are frequently uh, in states of undress, your character wears the exact same outfit 
for pretty much <laughs> the entire episode. Because, uh, no spoilers, but uh, Brian's character dies. I get shot. I get shot by Sheriff Trout. Yes. Played I- by Colton Ford. And you are uh, a ghost, essentially. Right. Well, I, I die in the, in the sixth episode of the first season. Right. Sorry for everyone who hasn't seen it. I, I do get shot. Right. And um, I figured if we did more of these that I just would be gone because I was killed, you right. know, in a, in a blowout where I got to fire guns and or I got to fire um, live, live blanks at, pointing at the crew. It was great. Right. Um, uh, I thought it was done. And then they called and said, no, you're coming back. You're, you're a ghost. And it kind of like, you know, segued itself into becoming Dave Moretti's kind of sidekick, kind of spiritual sidekick. Right. And it got a little bit more fun and a little bit more outrageous because I took myself really seriously the first season and uh, it, it worked, you know, right. but for the character's transition to the afterlife, you know, uh, I was able to, I think we all really got the series, you know, at that right. point I was able to kind of like camp it up in the right moments, if that makes sense. Uh but what I love is like once you're a ghost, mm. you're stuck in this outfit that you have to wear for two more seasons. Yes, because it's the outfit you died in, <laughs> and it's, uh, like, it's like the most hideous thing too. <laughs> like it's like a sports blazer and like a Hawaiian shirt and like these messed up jeans, and my hair is like, you know, up to the ceiling. And what I happen to know and love is that you have the entire you kept the entire outfit. You, I do. <laughs> you, you, you have it like in a in a garment bag, right? Like I do. Go, I think it should be in the Smithsonian. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? But like, what is this? Who is this? <laughs> um, so one thing that uh, I, I want to talk about before we move on to, from this subject is the lair did catch on with audiences, and it had yeah. kind of like a real moment there. Uh, and we I was shocked. It just kept going and going and going. And you know, the third season, I think, is the one I think we're all the most proud of because I think. Like I said, we all kind of got it by that point, right. you know, and it was fun. And that, and Fred, you can tell, was having a really good time doing it. Um, the the third season was thirteen episodes, and like literally, it was like delivered. It was like a whole ream of paper, like, and it was like literally this whole binded thing. It was like it was massive, and we shot all the episodes out of sequence every season, so you never knew what the hell you were talking about. You're talking about, you know, axes and vampires and ghosts and this and that. And you're like, I don't know what this is in reference to, but uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as it was going on, because gay audiences, as, as I said earlier, they didn't, there was an era where we didn't have a lot. Yeah. So when stuff was was presented, we became very passionate about it. Right. And uh, I think this show garnered a lot of very passionate fans, some of which you still hear from to this day. Absolutely. Um, and tell me a little bit about kind of your awareness of the fan culture around the show. At what point did you realize, like, oh, people are actually watching this? And just like, if you have any cool stories, uh, um, I think it was just like the amount of messages I got, like on at the time MySpace. Right. I remember after we shot the first season which was like summer camp, by the way, because we were all there all day long, just hanging out and getting into trouble and just having a good time. I remember, you know, going home and adding, all of us adding each other on MySpace because we're all (laughs) BFFs now for life. Right. Um, But I remember getting a lot of messages on MySpace um, and that's where I really like knew that, oh, wow, people were actually like watching this and and seeing this, you know? And um, uh, like you said, I think it is really cool that you say that it was a cultural milestone in a way because there's there was nothing like it and there's still nothing like it. Right. And I always feel like it will kind of have its renaissance, you know, at some point. Um, the way the third season ended, it was kind of left that, you know, the intention, I believe, from Fred and from, I believe, the network at the time was that there was going to be a fourth season. Um, and it just kind of never, it never came about. Um, well, here's the question. Yeah. In the era of the Netflix revival. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if Fred Olin Ray got the call, we want to do the new lair, would you go back and do Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I love that. Absolutely. Like, that was, like, like I said, it was the best time. And, you know, two of my closest friends are from that period of my life. Um, and uh, I wouldn't be working as a producer right now if it wasn't for Fred and Kim. Right. <laughs> Well, and I want to talk about that transition uh, yeah. because after The Lair, you continue to do acting. Uh, there are definite guest spots on TV, including things like Hannah Montana and iCarly. Which From I, The Lair to Hannah Montana and iCarly. Right. <laughs> uh, which I, I love that you were in both of those. Uh, and then, of course, like uh, queer films like Birthday Cake. Yeah, uh, I love that movie. That movie's so funny. Oh, it, I, I, I think I went to the first screening. That, oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, my God. 
Years have passed, Brian Nolan. <sighs> um, that was like five years ago too now, wasn't it? Or six years ago maybe? Six. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about that transition. Like you're, you're, you're continuing acting, but you're also starting to work more behind the scenes. And I know it was sort of like a slow build to the point now you're a producer who's making multiple t- films for, for networks and independent releases a year. But that's that's a big shift from being in front of the camera to behind the camera. So just talk to me a little bit about that. I think, you know, um, it was my destiny and like a dramatic, as dramatic as that sounds, you know, I right. think it was just a good fit for me. And, right. um, you know, with acting, it had been, you know, so many ups and downs, highs, lows. And around 2000, end of 2009, on my birthday, actually, I did you know, the uh, Hugh McGregor film, uh, Beginners, with Christopher Plummer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got cast in that, and I had this whole part and all these scenes with Hugh McGregor, and I was so excited about it. And uh, and my part was completely cut from the film, which is, you know, after being on this side now, I get it why some things are like that. Right. Um, but it was so crushing at the time, and, you know, I was just up... Like I said, it was the ups and downs, the the financial aspect of it as well too wasn't, wasn't always great. Um, and I, I realized, um, you know, I didn't come all the way out here to Los Angeles to not work in the entertainment industry because at the time I think I was working at Equinox. Right. Um, I don't think I know I was working at Equinox. I was, I sold gym memberships, which at the time I loved. And I, I would, you know, I'd do it again in a heartbeat cause I, I love working in that industry anyway. Um, and I just made a call to Kim and I said, can I work in the office, um, the production office on one of your movies? And she said, yes. And I started off as like an office PA slash production coordinator. Um, and then it just kind of kept happening and happening. And it was just a really great fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I love being a part of something. Uh, I love being a part of the creative process from the beginning until the end. I like seeing things through. As an actor, you come in for like a couple of days and and then you're uh and then you're done or right. or it's even more brief than that you might be working a day and then you're gone and you know there's all this established you know these established lives <laughs> they're right. just stepping into and leaving and it's so cool to be a part of something from the beginning until the end i think i really connected to that right um and from a organizational managerial aspect it just clicked with me i've realized with production i always tell people that i'm trying to bring up you know under me um it's not for everyone. You either right. get it or you don't. The movie ma- the movie has to happen no matter what. Right. And a lot of people don't necessarily get that. Right. Um, but there are people that do, and those are the people that are meant to work in production. And I think I uh I think I um that was just me, you know. Right. You know, I wanted I loved the fact that I was being able to organize and um create help create something uh that was art that people were seeing, that people were watching on television, right. you know? And then the bonus of that transition was that I've probably actually acted more now <laughs> since that transition, and I don't even pursue acting as, like, a career anymore. Right. Um, usually when I do act now, it's in it's in one of the movies I'm a producer on, and it's far and few between. You know, I usually right. just wait until I'm asked to do it. I still don't, I just insert myself and say, like, I'm, do, I'm doing this part. Right. And uh, I don't do that, but um, it's given me the best of both worlds. Right. And I love both aspects of it so much. So you feel creatively fulfilled on both sides. Yeah. What I like is looking across your resume and seeing that kind of trajectory and the transition. You go from acting roles to you can you can see when you look at your resume when you start producing, working as a line producer or as a, a unit production manager, and then it's like the train leaves the station. And I don't know when the last time you looked at your own <laughs> b- breakdown of work is, but you have produced in some capacity either as an associate producer, lead producer, co-producer, or line producer over 55 films that's insane and i know knowing you that those are just the ones that are currently listed and there's probably five more that are on the way that have not been added to your imdb yet this is true um (laughs) wow and and uh it's amazing the output because again these are not just features that no one sees they go on network television they go on streaming platforms they're released in theaters and internationally and uh it's so cool to see the work you're doing like uh you know when hallmark announces we're going to do 33 days of holiday (laughs) films uh every year 
a good percentage of them is yours. Yeah. So that's that's got to feel great to know that like at any given time, Brian Nolan could be on TV, whether you know it or not. That's it's it, when you put it that way. I'm like, oh my god! I've really tried to take that in recently, like right. how far I've come. And I, you know, what I, I gotta, you know, especially thank it's it's my higher ups, uh, Jeff Shank and Barry Barnholtz and Peter Sullivan, who right. I work work with at a production company uh, called Hybrid. You know, they have really given me the most tremendous opportunities, like to to lead, and they've really right. put a lot of trust in me. And uh, I always tell people, you know, like, oh, you're a producer, you, especially people who are in the industry. They think, they think, oh, you're a producer, so you just you you produce all the movies for Hallmark, or you do all of this. You know, right. I'm like, no, no, it's this is a collaborative process. I work for them. You know, right. they're they're hiring me to to make this movie happen essentially. And what so I like about the the I mean I've worked with those guys as well. Yes. And what I, I do really enjoy about the three several uh, movies now at this point. Well yes. And in fact, you know, I will say this. Uh, I wasn't necessarily planning on talking about it because this sh- episode is about you, not about me. No, but it's like that's our, you know, we have a business relationship too that yeah. I love that ha- keeps expanding. So yeah, Brian great. Nolan and I met uh years ago uh talking about Selena Gomez on the internet. Uh, <laughs> on Twitter, a- I remember. A- actual truth. And became <laughs> friends uh but then um we also have worked together professionally and uh you know i had written a number of indie horror films uh and brian was i you know is the person who brought me into the world of tv and i can never you know thank you enough and give you uh, enough credit for that because i remember brian called me and said uh you know we need another christmas movie is this something that you think you would be interested in. And up until I had received that phone call, I had never thought about it. I watched the movies, uh, but I viewed it as a challenge. And that movie was A Christmas Reunion starring Denise Richards and Patrick Muldoon. Yes. Uh, And what a joy and exciting adventure it was. And then from there, how many more? Like, I mean, we've done multiple movies together since uh, for multiple networks. More uh, more to come. More to come. Some that uh, you don't even know about and we're not allowed to tell you about (laughs) yet. Uh, But I do, what I love about this is is just seeing the work that you do. And uh, what I was going to say about uh, Jeff, Peter, and Barry is uh, for the purposes of the show, all of them kind of come from the horror world as well. Absolutely. Barry Barnholtz, for people who don't know, is the guy who pretty much made Leprechaun happen. He's the producer of Leprechaun. Yeah. The original. Yeah. And if you go into Barry's office, there's there's a Leprechaun there, like... That, that big green leprechaun statue right. he has. I've th- thought of sealing it many times. Every now and then he'll pull up something, and I'm like, wait, you were a producer on that? Like The Last Seduction 2 or uh, Whore, you know, with Reese Russell? I'm like, wow, it's like, that's kind of remarkable. You know, lots of lots of cult classics. It's true. There are many times where I'll be watching, like, because you know I love, like, an old uh, 80s movie. Oh, uh, like, same. Es- They're my favorite. Especially if it's, like, late night sleazy or whatever. But best. also sometimes just, like, a good cult hit, and I'm, I'll be watching it, and Barry's name will just pop up in the credits and I'll be like of course he did right. <laughs> uh, and uh, so there's just something fun about knowing that everyone's tendrils like go back to that kind of world right. of genre and Jeff Shank was actually an executive producer on the first season of The Lair right well, believe it or not I never met him during that time remarkably but uh, and uh, Peter Sullivan directs a lot of horror movies for uh, Sci-Fi Channel through absolutely. Hybrid he uh, did Sandman which I really enjoy so good uh, Ominous Ominous is great. Uh, and uh, High School Exorcism slash High School Possession, depending <laughs> what market you saw it in. Uh, I love that. But uh, so I, one thing I wanted to bring up, because you had mentioned like a, a soft transition, uh, all of these films you're producing and how it has led to you uh, to be able to act more as well. Yeah. Every um, now and then I'll pop up in one of our films. Right. And- including uh, you were in A Christmas in Vermont, which I wrote as a very... Uh, disturbed office worker <laughs> uh which i will always am always grateful for um but you were in a movie that you were a producer on that uh you also got to play a really kind of fun role mm-hmm. with a certain individual who was in an academy award-winning film and what makes this unique is that individual oh, I know you're about, oh, yeah. was not a human being right the movie's a holiday road trip, yeah. and you're in the movie with Augie? Augie, the dog. The yeah. dog. May he rest in peace, by the way. From The Artist, the Academy right. Award-winning film. Uh, just tell me a little bit about that role, because it's not often that you get to like share your scenes with an Academy Award-winning dog. Dog, right. Yeah. It was super cool. Yeah. Like, and I, I had heard it was the dog from The Artist. I'm like, oh my god, that dog is so cute. Um, and I, I shot that thing, and one day I played, you know, going back to our... 
uh, our conversation earlier, I played an outrageous gay hairdresser. Um, yeah. well, he, he wasn't gay. He was just out. I mean, he might have been gay, but he was he was just outrageous. Yeah. So, you know, how else do you play a hairdresser in a, you know, outrageous way? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fred Ray actually directed that directed that movie. Um, and uh, Patrick Muldoon, it's uh, he's the one watching the dog, I believe, in, right. in the scene um, who I love. I love Patrick. Um it was cool. I mean, it was the dog's really obedient, really well trained. I have a picture of it in my living room with uh, with Augie, right? And, um, and your awesome green bow tie. That's right. To me, as Smithsonian ready as Frankie's outfit. <laughs> <laughs> you always get the best clothes in movies. I don't know what it is. I you or know what? the most memorable. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes they put me in things. I'm like, oh my god. Um, but I try not to be one of those actors. That's right, like, right. I'm not wearing this. You know, <laughs> like trust me, I see it plenty. Um, uh, yeah, no, it was cool. And I actually get people noticing me in that movie because that's one of those movies that it came out in 2013 mm-hmm. and they air the crap out of it every year. Right. So people will see it every year and take a screen grab and post on my Facebook page like, congrats on this. And I'm like, wait, this is from what five I, years love, ago. I love, that. by the way, and I know that you get this as well, especially because of the holiday movies, they're sort of like goldfish memory for them. Yeah. Is, uh, I am doing new, I'm doing a new holiday movie this year, but last year I didn't. But because all the old ones air, you'll get all these messages like, oh, my God, congratulations on your movie. I'm like, that's three years old. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, but thank you for watching. Like, it's really kind of cool. Like, yeah. it, it's sort of uh, I love when people are just like discover it. But what I think is really sweet is people watch it and are excited. Right. About it. I, I, I love like we talk a lot about so many people see these movies. They and do. They, and they are so ingrained as people's holidays traditions, uh, holiday traditions now. No. And that was I remember one of the things that you and Jeff told me when I wrote the first one. It's like you're going to be part of people's Christmas now forever. And that's kind of cool and kind of terrifying at the same, right. same uh, way. Uh you had kind of alluded to this earlier. Speaking of roles that you've had in movies that you've been involved with, uh, you had said when you had auditioned for The Lair, Kim thought that you resembled a young Tom Hanks. Yeah, yes. Now, fast forward to a movie you produced last year? Uh, uh, yeah. It, well, we shot it in 17, came out in 2018. Right. Uh, and it's a true story about Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. Yes. Called A Tale of Two Corys. Produced with uh, Corey Feldman as well. That's right. And you, in the movie, not only you were one of the producers on the movie, but you have the opportunity to play Tom Hanks. That's right. So there's your full circle moment. You get referenced as Tom Hanks yeah. in an audition, and you got to play him on the set of The Burbs. That's right. Was that weird? It was awesome, you know, because <laughs> I love I love Tom Hanks, and that was kind of, he was always kind of like my, my, um, my inspiration at, and when I was in theater school as what I would want to be as an actor, you know, and... Right. Uh, uh, it was funny because I did this play, I did this Christopher Durang play when I was in college called Baby with the Bathwater. And mm-hmm. uh, one of my friends from college who was in the the play with me, his his mom had seen the show and she told me afterwards, she's like, you're like, you're, you're comedy, you're like a, you're like Tom Hanks when you do comedy. And I was like, wow, that's like the greatest compliment you could ever give me. Right. And then I realized over time, like, uh, especially as like a comedic actor, I picked up a lot of his traits and I feel that came from like growing up watching him right him and Steve Martin I noticed I've done stuff that have been like so I think those quirks were kind of innately like in me you know that right. to to do something like Tom Hanks would you know like he would probably do that right. <laughs> well we all emulate our heroes in some right. way before we kind of turn it into our own thing right. I don't so know the that- Corey's thing was cool it was neat it was it was fun uh, I don't think that I've ever gotten a chance to talk about Tom Hanks on the show before. Although Tom Hanks has done some some genre material. Yeah, his first movie. Yeah, uh, he knows you're alone. Yes. Yeah, uh, he's in it for like five minutes too. He's like sassy friend or not sassy friend, but you know you that's know the part I would play. It was yeah. like friend down the street or whatever. Uh, <laughs> is do you have a favorite Tom Hanks movie? And is there an underrated Tom Hanks movie that you wish more people liked? My favorite Tom Hanks movie is Road to Perdition. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but it's a good movie. <laughs> it's you know it's an excellent film. It's yeah, an yeah. excellent film. Um, my favorite Tom Hanks movie. Oh man, Forrest Gump like moves me. Right. Um, but the older I get, the harder it is to watch like sad stuff. Um, guys, so there's so many. I you know what in 
our friend Peter Stickles can attest to this, uh, very partial to A League of Their Own. Uh, right. Even though he's not the, the star of that movie, uh, he's very impactful into that film. Um, he really is. And says one of the most iconic lines in, in film history. There's no crying in baseball. That's right. Uh, I... You know, I was thinking about it. I was like, how would I answer this question? I really, really, really like Joe versus the Volcano. I was about to say. And I feel like it just doesn't get discussed enough. It's my favorite Hanks Ryan pairing. And they've had some good ones. Right. But uh, I just think it's one that doesn't get discussed enough. I saw that movie in the theater, I remember, with my parents. And my my dad had to explain to me, like, oh, Meg Ryan played all those different women. I'm like, what? Like, I didn't realize it for whatever reason. Oh she was God. she was that she was that uh, um, effective. Um, she is an icon of an era. Meg Ryan is. Yeah, I would love we would love to have her in one of our movies. That'd be great. Um, um, I was to say with uh, Corey's uh, the Burbs. Actually, I would feel like is probably one of his most underrated uh, movies. I feel right. Um, again, like a really cool movie directed by Joe Dante right. and. Uh, completely dark and ahead of its time and so different in so many aspects. And that's the Tom Hanks I was playing in uh, The Corys because right. uh, uh, Corey Feldman's first intervention was by Carrie Fisher on the set of that movie. Um, and uh, that's probably one of my favorites. I have a little button. I, we got it at DragCon that we went to this year, me, you, and Peter, and right. our, our dear friend Lottie. I have a Burbs pin. I love that. that I love. Uh, well, from talking about Tom Hanks films to films in general, uh, what have you seen lately that you like or that inspires you? Um, gosh, I, uh, I, I, I really like Bohemian Rhapsody oh, yeah? a lot. That was probably, it's probably my favorite movie, uh, out of all of, like the critically acclaimed movies of, uh, of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much great television on right yes. now. Uh, there's so much great television. Um, as you know, I'm a huge Stranger Things fan. Can't wait for the third season of that. It's coming up. That that uh, that emulates everything I feel like inspired me as a kid, and I think that it does that for a lot of people, which is why people like it. It's the combination of Steven Spielberg and, and Stephen King, you know. Yeah, it's like a perfect storm of like Amblin Entertainment by way of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Kind of right. Yeah. Oh, I, nice throwback. Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, that was a show that I, as a kid, always wanted to be on. Yeah, like. I don't necessarily fancy myself as an actor, but I would muddle through a half hour of Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Stranger Things is is definitely, I have to say, uh, every time it's on, uh, what I like, every time it's on, is if like you you choose to watch it because it's on streaming. Right. But I, I all, what I value about that show is I know what they're referencing when I watch it. And so for me, part of the value of Stranger Things is watching an episode and thinking to myself, oh, this reminds me of Firestarter. Gosh, I haven't seen Firestarter in a while, so I want to go watch that. Right. So what I enjoy as someone who comes from the era that they are are paying homage to uh, is just the opportunity to revisit favorites of mine. And it like it's a show that by virtue of watching it expands my own playlist. But what my own hope is, is for uh, younger viewers who don't know that stuff, maybe you're like, oh, I love Stranger Things, and are like, oh, this was inspired by Firestarter or E.T. or blah, 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 right. or or the book, The Tommy Knockers. I should go read that. Yeah, you should. Go do that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, you, 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 uh, you capture everything I, everything I feel and think perfectly with that i I think lately i've been really into a lot of um older older stuff especially the past couple years i've i've uh like you said you want to go back and revisit certain things which makes you want to expand your horizons on other things you know right and that's been the past couple years for me it's like i keep going back to old shows or old movies and and watching all these things or getting the blu-rays on them and 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 revisiting them and it's so cool to, to watch this stuff now um, especially with all my knowledge <laughs> that I know now right. um, as an adult, but as a movie maker, um, I look at everything from like a production angle, you know, like I rewatched, um, I know what you did last summer the other, the other day when I was doing some work around the house right. and I was like, this movie really holds up really well still. And, and I, it had like the perfect setting, this coastal town and there's all these great like aerial shots and I'm like, wow, that must've been a helicopter cause there was no drones at the time. And, right. uh, you know, and then just the content and the performances and everything like that, it, it holds up great. I, uh, 
I haven't seen the original I Know What You Did Last Summer in a long time, although I did recently rewatch I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, <laughs> uh, which is a bananas sequel right. that like really hinges upon plot points that don't make any sense. But that's what I think make it delicious. It's like Brandy and Jennifer Love Hewitt win a radio contest <laughs> I know. to go to like a tropical island during rainy season where a very kind of offensive Rastafarian version of Jack Black is hanging out. <laughs> and then it's like... Here we are, so why don't we just have Jennifer Love Hewitt perform a hit pop single? Like, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I got to revisit that one. Wow. I have that on VHS. I got to revisit that one now. It's next. good. Have you ever seen that third one they made? I uh, have. I've seen that one, too. They shot that in Big Bear, I'll, California. Always know what you did last summer. I haven't seen that. You know, it's weird. I like, still know what you did last summer. I'm serious this time, and I'm going to get you. Like, I want that to be the next incarnation of it. I just love, there was, like, that run of, like, the inspired by, like, you know, prompted by the success of scream Mm -hmm. slasher movies of the 90s that would like have the like big drop so it's like you know urban legend i still know what you did last summer etc and then they would have the sequel that kind of like did okay and then like both of those both urban legend and i I know what you did last summer had a third entry that people are kind of like huh it's out there (laughs) i haven't seen it yet though but i'm working on it but i I actually have seen that one because i knew uh, an actress in that movie um uh scream again another film that i love so much and that came out like at a perfect time in my life because it it came out literally uh right when i turned 17 so i was uh, able to go see it in the theater it was the first like r-rated film that i went as a legal 17 year old in the theater to see um and it was awesome. And I think Scream 2, my senior year of high school, when that came out, I saw it three times in the theater. If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> Scream and Rent debuted the same year. They did, yeah. Isn't uh, that wild? It's totally wild. Um, well, the Rent, the workshop was 95, Broadway was 96, and then Scream was, like was December 1996 at the end of the year. And then yeah. wide release January 97. Don't ask me how I know all this stuff. I, I love it. I also <laughs> love when I have like kind of so- sort of fuzzy dates when people set me straight. So yeah. <laughs> um, I have an autobiographical memory that's not as good as Mary Lou Henner's where she remembers every day of her life. But it's uh... um, one time I was at a sushi restaurant on Ventura in Studio City and Mary Lou Henner was waiting for a table and we sat next to each other and she looked at me a few times. And so like I like to think that like if I ever run into her again, she'd, she'd, remember be, you. she'd be like, oh, <laughs> it's you from that sushi place because her powers have been touted so much right. that like I want to know right. if it's true. <laughs> Also, Mary Lou Henner, who I know is listening to the show right now. You never know. Yeah, please come on. I'm obsessed with her. I'm obsessed with her because I'm I'm obsessed with dates and stuff like that. And usually like the past like 10 years or so, I can recall, if I can't recall the exact date, I can recall what month it was and what portion of the month it was. Right. Um, But it's not like her where they remember everything every day of their life for since they were 12 which is insane i can't do that but i'm really good about pinpointing years and dates and places you know what i think it's like a wild superpower that also feels like it should be something in an m night Shyamalan film because it seems like a curse it's like i remember every minute of every day right that seems like a nightmare yeah (laughs) especially for all the pain that we experience as as uh, as humans um but uh yeah the coolest thing about my job my dad always reminds me uh, about this is that I get to work with these actors I've known a lot of them I've known who they are my entire life my dad right. would remind me about that I'm like oh it's so cool so it's always super exciting for me to to meet and work a lot with a lot of these people you know that were the ones that inspired me growing up you know um, well I think about it, it is sort of the gift of doing what we do and like yeah. I don't even think about it always but then uh, I remember going to see Starship Troopers at the theater yeah and then when we did a Christmas reunion, we had Denise Richards, Patrick Muldoon, and Jake Busey. Right. Starship it, Troopers reunion. We love those. We love the yeah, reunions. We put all three of them in the... Well, you put all three of them in the movie. And Oh, yeah. You say Jeff. Jeff did. Yeah, Jeff did. Jeff yeah. did, yeah. But, I, uh, <laughs> but like, how cool then? Like, I'm sitting here thinking, like, they were in this movie that I loved growing up, owned on VHS, and then they're in a movie that I wrote. And it's also the only time all three of them have been back together on screen since so, then. Since then, yeah. We said um, at Hybrid, we've done, we've worked with like every Starship Troopers actor at one right. point or the other, with the exception of Neil Patrick Harris. He's our only only one. I think right. Jeff and Peter even did a movie with Michael Ironside years ago. So they've they've they've, they've, they've we've, we've burned the gamut. <laughs> I love that. Uh, well, here's to more reunions to come. Speaking of Absolutely. things to come, uh, before we head off into the night, what are you working on? What's next? What can you tell us about? Well, I'm 
planning on going to Broadway and with my <laughs> with my dance my dance review. Um, I well, we just did a movie um, for Netflix. Uh, we shot it in fall, okay. and that was probably like the biggest movie we've ever done. Um, and it's called Secret Obsession, and it's awesome. Right. It has uh, Brenda Song in it uh, from Sweet Life of Zach and Cody, and uh, Mike Vogel from. Uh, a lot of stuff, but you might, this audience might remember him from Texas Chainsaw Massacre as the guy gets put up on the hook in the, the Jessica Biel remake, remake. Yeah, yeah. which is fantastic. Fantastic, uh, well-made uh, remake, by the way. Yeah. Um, that movie terrifies me. Um, uh, we just did a movie with them mm-hmm. for Netflix. It's a thriller. Um, it's supposed to start streaming, I believe, at the end of late, late spring, early summer uh, time. Um, so we're all really excited about that movie. Um, so that's coming out. Um, we're getting ready for another exciting year of, uh, Christmas movies. Uh, now's the time we're trying to put them all together. We, you know, everyone always says, why do you use fake snow and why do you not shoot in winter? It's, as you know, it's a process with these films and and getting these movies, you know, greenlit made the, the whole shebang. So we're, we're doing that right now. And, uh, it's gonna be another really, really busy, exciting year. Um, well, I can't wait. Yeah, it never a dull moment. So it's I'm very grateful uh, for everything. I'm grateful to people that put me in this position, and I'm grateful to be here. And uh, I think going forward, you know, I'm trying to. My goal this year was just to be more creative, you know, and and uh, keep the uh, create creativity because I get so lost in the managerial sense of everything. Right. I'm just trying to be more creative. So that's my personal. Well, I have cool. no doubt you'll do it. Yeah. And speaking of gratitude, Brian Nolan, it means so much that you came today. Thanks for having me. I feel so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I hope your listeners were as interested uh, in this as we are. Uh, I'm sure they were. Uh, and speaking of, if they are uh, really into what you said, where can people find you? Um, on the stage of my off-Broadway <laughs> review. Uh, no, uh, now it's off-Broadway. It's no longer on Broadway. Um, I like with each time. It's like, and you're like, and now in the community theater of Bethesda, Maryland, Brian Nolan and the Nolettes. <laughs> <laughs> the Altamont Springs Theater of, uh, of outside Orlando, Florida. I don't think that's a real theater, by the way. Um, uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, the whole shebang. Um, my Twitter and Instagram ha- handle is, uh, hey, I'm Brian Nolan, uh, H-E-Y-I-M, uh, B-R-I-A-N-N-O-L-A-N. And then um, Facebook, I think I I claimed it, um, facebook.com slash Brian Nolan. Because um, oh. remember when they were you can name your your URL or whatever on Facebook and it was like a certain time, like I, I camped out and I was like, I'm claiming Brian Nolan because there's so many Brian Nolans. Right. And uh, I never get, I've never been able to a- obtain like a pure Brian Nolan email unless it was like a work, email or right. like a or like a website so i claim facebook.com slash brian nolan well you're the purest brian nolan to me <laughs> <laughs> thank you michael this has been awesome thank you for having me thank you for being here uh listeners yes please keep your eyes open for all of the things brian is producing across many television networks and indie releases and yeah. streaming platforms he's always got something cool uh so watch those credits i bet you'll see his name and if you need a little uh queer fang fantastic action in your day please go check out the seasons of the lair where you can see this marvelous human being do his stuff uh as well as just pop onto his imdb because he has acted in a lot of stuff and there's plenty of things for you to go watch that's your assignment for this week uh my name is michael verati this has been dead for filth yours always in glam and gore good night and good luck Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>